0: My name is Nathan Anibaba and you are listening to Agency Dealmasters on a day, in a week and in a month that we will all remember for a very long time to come. So amid all of the uncertainty, anxiety and panic buying of tissues, I'm reminded of a quote from Epictetus, Stoic philosopher in Greece, who said that it's not what happens to us that defines us, but it's how we choose to respond that does. So we have decided to take that piece of Stoic philosophy and continue bringing you world class interviews from sales and marketing leaders from around the world to lighten your mood, educate you and hopefully entertain you in the process. And today's show is the epitome of that. My extra special guest this week is Blair Enns. He is the CEO of Win Without Pitching. And if you are one of the 15 or so people in the world who has not yet read his book, I suggest you head over to Amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold and pick up a copy for you and your business development people. It's one of those books that you realize within the first few pages of reading it, yeah, this is a good book. It's short, super practical, full of enduring business development insights and just business insights. Um the book's been around for 10 years. It's still as fresh and as relevant today as it was in 2010. And by the way, he did that intentionally. He said that he wanted to write a book that if you picked it up, it would feel old while at the same time relevant. Annual sales of the book have increased year after year. It hit the Amazon bestseller list in January of 2020. Blair is funny, charming, scary smart and has a deep and (laughs) kind of a uh, smoother and silkier voice than I'm told that I do. I could have listened to him talk all day. If you only listen to one of these podcasts this year, this is the podcast to listen to. If you are remotely interested in anything to do with winning new business for your agency, you will find this conversation to be Absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Blair Enns. Blair Enns is the CEO of Win Without Pitching, the author of the Win Without Pitching Manifesto and Pricing Creativity, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour He also co-presents the Two Bobs podcast with David C. Baker. His book is a manifesto of business practices for those who sell ideas and advice. The 12 proclamations were written to inspire owners of independent creative businesses, i.e. design firms and advertising agencies, to rethink how their services are bought and sold. The book is still on the Amazon bestseller list after 10 years I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Blair Ends. welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Nathan, it's
1: my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely fascinating to speak to you. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a very long time now, even though the weather in Canada did its best to try and stop us from speaking <laughs> yesterday, but we, you got the power back on and now yeah. we're speaking.
1: We had a Uh, 12-hour power outage across the entire village that I live in a remote mountain village. So it's, it's, um, it happens more often
0: than you would think. Um, That's what we had yesterday. So you live in a place with just a a thousand people in the village. Is that right?
1: A little less than a thousand. I think it's 976
0: absolutely <laughs> you've you've counted individually <laughs> super interesting uh so you you've just got an absolutely fascinating history and and background and um you get your master's degree from dogland university in 1999 in marine in marine biology and underwater welding <laughs> how do you go <laughs> this is it's this is a Let really interesting route there.
1: that's a lie you, you got that from my LinkedIn profile. I did. And it's, uh, You're lying. It's a, it's a complete lie. There's no such thing as Doggerland University. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure there's no degree program in underwater welding on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell this story quickly. A few years ago, I did, my, um, I did some genetic testing, my 23andMe. I don't know if you have that in the UK, but yeah, it's it. fairly big over here. And one of the things I learned, I was looking for some some answers to some health questions but one of the things i learned about my ancestry is it says my people hail from doggerland i'd never heard of doggerland so i google it and apparently when the uh, at times on the planet when um when a lot of the seawater is tied up in polar ice caps like during ice ages and the sea levels drop the land between um the U.K., mainland Europe, and Norway basically drops, and that becomes arable farmland, huh. and that's known as Doggerland. So basically, I'm from Atlantis, um, <laughs> and so I thought, well, that's really interesting. And for some reason, I what immediately popped to mind was this Doggerland University sweatshirt or T-shirt, and I I almost got into the business a little sideline of marketing those things and I thought what would one study at Doggerland University (laughs) I thought well it would be marine biology and underwater welding so no the truth is I was academically expelled from a liberal arts university in Canada after just one year right and then I did a business two-year business administration diploma program at a community college and that took me three years and I almost didn't graduate from that. So even though I'm a lifelong learner, I'm not a very good
0: student when it comes to sitting in a classroom. Really interesting. I was going to ask <laughs> about Doggolin University, but I was thinking, hey, it's Canada. Maybe they, have, <laughs> maybe they have different types of universities out there with unusual names. Who am I to judge? Yeah. Um, but uh, but that's really interesting that you put that actually on your LinkedIn profile um so how do you go from so t- tell us the journey about how you go from finishing your uh degree are, are the dates still correct 1999 is that
1: when oh uh, you... they sound
0: right i'm okay. not very good with dates sounds proxy yeah no that sounds about right okay so how do you how how do you go from there to starting your career in the media in the marketing world Well, I stumbled into the world
1: of advertising. Um, I was trying to get a job in public relations and uh, a PR firm that uh, I had applied to didn't hire me for a job. And then they called me back a few months later and said, hey, we bought an ad agency. Would you like to come work in advertising? And in some ways that was kind of fate because when I was in junior high school, so that's seventh, eighth and ninth grades in um, Canada. I, uh, I won the school oratory contest, so everybody had to write and deliver a speech in their classroom, then it went up to the grade, then it went up to the whole school. And and I won the contest, and the speech I gave was on advertising. Um, so I kind of stumbled into the hmm. career of advertising, I loved it. Um, it wore me out after a while. Hmm. And I wanted to get out of advertising. I discovered this beautiful remote mountain village where I thought I would drop out and move here with my young family, which mm. we did. Um, but I needed to find a way to earn a living. I had no skills in the two main local economies, which were logging and marijuana growing. <laughs> um,
0: so I launched. Although marijuana when... growing is uh, it's increasingly lucrative these days.
1: Well, it's now legal. So it's not so it's the legalization of marijuana in Canada has decimated the local industry. <laughs> so, sure. um, I always tell people, I don't, uh, I don't know anything about logging or dope growing, but right. if you, uh, if you need some logs, <laughs> I can get you
0: some. really interesting. So you, you held senior account director roles at young and Rubicam McCann and cassette communications marketing. Um, how did that experience at those firms lead you to setting up Win Without Pitching in two thousand
1: and two? You know the multinational agencies of YNR and McCann; uh, those were different experiences to working with a couple of uh, uh, regional agencies because the. The dynamics, the new business dynamics are different. I didn't have a big new business role in either of the multinational agencies I worked in, but I had significant new business roles in the more local and regional agencies Hmm. that I worked in. So I I got a chance to see... You know what it's like to work in the big agencies and what it's like to work in the small agencies. so I have this kind of breadth of experience our business Win without pitching which is now a training company mm-hmm. is really built around helping the independent agency we don't do much work at all in fact I think I've twice in 15 years I've worked with holding co- company owned agencies we don't we generally don't work with agencies where ownership is separated from management mm-hmm. I'm an entrepreneur and I uh I really want to help entrepreneurs, especially creative entrepreneurs, so we're really driven to focus on that market.
0: When Without Pitching is sort of seen as a bible among sort of independent agency owners, as, as you've said and as I've um, alluded to earlier in the show, and it's been a perennial seller actually on the bestseller list on amazon.com for sort of 10 plus years now, so I'm going to ask you a question about how you have actually did that a little bit later, but what actually led you to write the book in the first place?
1: I think when you, when you run a knowledge based business, you feel this pressure to write a book right away. Sure. And I've at, at, at my core, in my heart, I am a writer. When I studied business in school, it was, I, I basically tossed a coin. I was going to study journalism, um, or creative writing or, or business. And I really wanted to be a writer, but I didn't think, I also wanted to earn, <laughs> earn some money and I didn't think I'd be able to earn the money that I wanted to earn as a writer. J.K. So Rowling, I, I mean, go it, down the list. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could, you could have been the next, right? Well, the irony is, I mean, uh, my my book business uh, would would support me on its own now. Wow. Uh, I essentially <laughs> run two different businesses. One huh. is a publishing company of my own works, and one is a training company, and hmm. they're both viable businesses. So hmm. it's kind of become it's complex. Okay, interesting. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So, so why did the book become so popular so quickly? How has it endured over 10 years?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Back to your question. Um, a, eh, well, I, when I, when I wrote the book, I, I purposely s- sat down to write a timeless book. I wanted to write a book where if you, you picked it up. I wanted to write a book that would outlast me and so I set lofty goals for the book. Um, mm. I wanted it to outlast me. And I wanted to, at any point in time, if you pick this book up, it would feel old while, while simultaneously relevant. So there's no reference to technology of any kind. There's nothing in there that's of this time, although it, it opens with a statement that says we are at a crossroads. But that that statement... I I believe it's universally true. I believe artists are always at this crossroads where there are these competing pressures on them. Um, so I think that's a statement that will hold up over time. So it, it really was my intent to set to uh, to write a book that would last. And, and you made the point that it's been on the bestseller list for ten years. So it'll be ten years this July will be the tenth anniversary of the book. It hasn't been. An Amazon bestseller for 10 years we're approaching 40,000 copies sold and annual sales have increased every year over year has have increased every year since the first year it's come out but it just hit the Amazon bestseller list earlier this year in January of 2020 I received an email from one of Amazon's robots saying, um, do you want to put the Kindle edition of the one without pitching manifesto on sale? And so I clicked yes. And then a few months later it went on sale for a week and sales just went up by like orders of magnitude. Wow. Um, and it hit, it hit number one in all of these categories of sales and marketing and business consulting, et cetera, in multiple countries. So it was really, it was a, Phenomenal. it was a, an overnight success that was nine
0: and a half years in the <laughs> making. <laughs> phenomenal. Ryan Holiday has a book called Perennial Seller, which basically. I just talks finished about, it about a week ago, yeah. Did you like it? He's fantastic. Yeah. He's just phenomenal. I everything that he writes is just awesome. But he only brought that out. That was, that's only like two or three years old. You had this intention 10 years ago to make a perennial <laughs> seller. How did you know that you'd you would be successful? Because there are very few books that actually succeed in doing that. Good to Great is one. Business books, Lean Startup, maybe E Myth. Uh, Yes, I'm struggling now. Um, You know what's the one um, highly influential influential people? um, Oh, How to Win Friends. How to Win Friends. Right, The Goal by Ilya Goldratt. The Goal. I haven't read that yet. That's still on my list, but I hear it's it's fantastic how have you, why, what made you think that you would be successful and how have you been so successful?
1: Well, um, so when I, I sat down to write, uh, I, backing up to an earlier question, I'll try to answer, answer two questions at once. Um, the impetus for writing the book is I felt pressure right from the beginning of when without pitching, when it was a solo consulting practice, and not the training company it is today, but when I launched the business, I felt pressure to write right from the beginning. And I kept thinking, well, I I had, I essentially self published my first book that I, when I wanted to launch a consulting practice, I just wrote down everything I knew, and then I put it together in this three ring manual, and I sold it on my website for a thousand dollars a copy or $995 a copy. So I had written one book, but I knew I wanted to write, I felt like I needed to get a popular book out there. And I attempted to write a book a few times and I felt this constant pressure. And then um, I was a regular uh, blogger at that point, And one of my blog posts at the end of the calendar year, and I forget which year, probably would have been about 2008, 2007, 2008, was called Twelve Proclamations for a New Year, hmm. and, and I wrote it. I love manifestos. I read all the manifestos, hmm. and I wrote it in a manifestoish voice, like a, this: these these Twelve Proclamations. Sure. We shall, we will. Sure. This kind of high and mighty voice, and mm-hmm. I, the the voice I used scared me more than anything I'd written to that point. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is gonna be this is really different, and I I hit sand, and then I started getting feedback for months. People saying, I printed this out, and I've I've tacked it to my wall. Um, So when I came back to the idea of writing a book, I thought, you know, this is a pretty good Mm. format for a book. And it's a book that I've always, manifestos are ageless when they're done right. Mm -hmm. And some people find them a little bit off-putting because they're too, uh, they're taking too much of a stand. Sure. Um, I met Stephen Heller once and Stephen Heller has authored dozens of books on graphic design. And Mm -hmm. i he and I were speaking at a conference, and I said, oh, um, Mr. Heller, I've wanted to meet you for a while. I'd like to give you a copy of my book. And I handed it to him, and he looked at it, and he said, hmm, I've just written a blog post on why the world doesn't need another manifesto.
0: Oh, that's, that's <laughs> awkward.
1: <laughs> but I thought you know, you know there are times when, when I started to shape this as a book and I the the proclamations came to me very easily. Sure. I I believed them. I believed my audience. Like I feel like I'm in the empowerment business. Sure. My audience needed to be empowered, needed to be told that we can you can do this, we can do this. Sure. Stand up for yourself, say no, essentially. And um and that was the format. So once I decided on the format, the rest was mm. fairly easy, except for the writing part. I find writing painful but uh rewarding. And it and it's you know, back to Ryan Holiday's book, Perennial Seller, like he, he hit on all of the key things that I think I I did write. It was it was timeless. Um I got a bunch of I put the manuscript out there for a bunch of feedback from a bunch of friends and colleagues and I very quickly realized I'm going to have to just completely disregard the vast majority of the feedback. You really have to pick huh. your spots because if I had made the changes that everybody had suggested, it would not be the book that it is.
0: Interesting, huh? How fascinating is that? Yeah. Yeah, you really have to sort of stand on your own two feet and really be confident in the direction that you're going in. The the biggest takeaway from reading Ryan Holiday's book for me it was a couple of years ago now, now that I read it was like what he said around creating a fantastic product in the first place like that's the thing that actually results in products um, selling well over the long term you actually have to create something that's good <laughs> and yeah. that lasts long because I think a lot of people sort of think oh, okay we can create something but then let the marketing make sure that it's it, it, it sort of lasts for a long time but actually the things that last a very long time are actually inherently good in themselves.
1: Yeah, that really resonated with me too. I had a a novelist friend who since passed away who was giving me feedback on the book, and she was scarred by publishing a novel of hers, her big novel. She realized afterwards um, she wished she hadn't published it. In fact, about a year after she published it, she showed up at my door with a with the version of the book rewritten, retitled, reprinted at her own expense. She printed 100 copies for friends, and she handed it to me, and she said, this is the book I meant to write. Hmm. And when I started sharing the manuscript with her, she kept saying to me, Blair, you can't unpublish. You can't unpublish. Hmm. So she kept forcing me to go back to it and back to it. Um, and Ryan Holiday talks about this. I I, I hadn't thought about marketing when I, you know, I published hmm. the book. I thought... It wasn't until the book showed up and it was alive that I thought, oh, I should really think about what I'm going to do with this. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I, when I started, I had a sense of what the book, what I wanted the book to be like physically. So I, I wanted a certain size. So I actually went through my library of books and I thought, here's a book that's about the right size, but it's a little bit too big. So I took an exacto knife and I cut it down.
0: Hmm.
1: And I cut it down so I had the physical size of the book. And then including the page count. And then I worked backwards to get the word count from there because I knew my audience, primarily designers, not necessarily going to read a 50,000 word book. So the word count comes in at about 24,000. And I just I wanted it to feel a certain way in my hand. and I wanted that linen cover. So I I don't I've never talked to any other author who's worked that way Hmm. with beginning with the physical feel of the book and working back from that.
0: Let's talk about a quote from the book. You say that the forces of the creative professionals are aligned against the artist. These forces pressure him to give away his work for free as a means of him proving his worthiness of the assignment. You wrote that statement in 2010. Are agencies still giving away their work for free? Are they still doing that?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, well, I wouldn't say it's gotten worse. I know uh, I and some others have had some impact in the world, um, but it's a it's a universal problem that has a few different sources. Like number working backwards uh, from two main sources. Number two would be we've trained the client that this is the way you hire an agency mm-hmm. that. We'll give away our highest value product, our thinking away for free as proof of our – we'll prove – we'll solve the problem as proof of our ability to solve the problem.
0: Hmm.
1: But the primary reason is it's in the nature of what it means to be creative. Creative people are drawn to solving the problem they haven't previously solved. They get, they're they drawn to variety. They're easily excited about the task. These are all great characteristics, um, but it's like dangling – crack cocaine in front of a recovering addict right <laughs> sure sure uh so creative people and therefore creative firms are just are so excited about the work i mean uh sunk cost bias is massive in the agency world we try it on we, have, mm. we think we've already won it it's ours it's mm. like it's why you always overbid something at an auction mm. And then the fear of losing it, fear of not being able to work on this really interesting creative assignment drives you to do things that don't look very rational from the outside.
0: Really fascinating. Let's talk about the fourth proclamation. We will <clears throat> rethink what it means to sell. You say, quote, we will acknowledge that our fear and misunderstanding of selling has contributed to our preference for the pitch. We'll embrace sales as a basic business function that cannot be avoided and as so we will learn to do it properly as respectful facilitators. Now, sales is still seen as a very dirty word, and it's really weird because you know we read and study marketing books all the time. Agencies can tell me about amazing marketing books that they've read, but if I asked them to tell me about an amazing sales book that they've read, they'd struggle. Why don't we put as much learning and effort into learning about sales as we do about marketing?
1: I think marketers generally look down their nose at salespeople, Hmm. um, because they see marketing as the more noble path to the same goal. And the goal is to drive a transaction. So marketers tend to think, um, see themselves as more sophisticated and maybe even more efficient or effective because marketing is about, you know, grouping people together based on similarities, or at least the promotion part of marketing. Sure. And, um, and then mass messages uh, to drive transactions at volume, whereas sales is driving transactions one at a time. Mm-hmm. So I think marketers tend to look down their nose at salespeople. And and I think we're all, maybe not all of us, but most of us, especially those, those of us who don't see themselves as uh, natural-born salespeople, we're
0: scarred. I disagree with that, by the way. I don't think there is such a thing as a natural-born salesperson. We oh, interesting. Bit yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. go back to that. Yeah. Sorry, but, go ahead. But
1: we're, we're scarred because even if we have little experience at selling or th- we think we have little experience at selling, we've all we all have a lot of experience at buying. Hmm. And we have all been on uh, the 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 bad side of a horrible buying experience. We all know what it means to be a bad salesperson, sure. even if we've never been in sales. Yeah. We know it because we've, we've experienced, experienced it. And yeah. when we. We experience – and a a bad sales experience comes from somebody who's – usually their incentives are not properly aligned to the right goals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's often a lack of training too or the wrong type of training. And the sales profession is guilty of that as well. Um, Bad training, bad books. Hmm. Um, So we all know what it's like to be uh, – on the bad, wrong side of it, right. we know how horrible sales can be from a buyer point of view and we never want to be seen that way ourselves. Mm-hmm.
0: But on the opposite side, when sales is done well, it actually good sales doesn't feel as though you're being sold to at all. So people actually don't know what it feels like in a good sales transaction. We, we know what it feels like to to be on the wrong side of a selling transaction, but when sales is done well, it doesn't feel as though we're being sold to so it feels really good um that's it just... feels like we're being helped it's a thing
1: of beauty it's, it's like this i this this person really has my interest sure. at heart they're not busy thinking about what they're going to say to me next right. or what they want to sell they're truly listening to me i feel like i can trust them it's a wonderful experience yeah and but it's a little bit rare isn't yeah, it yeah
0: it really is sales has the worst branding problem in the world like we need a campaign to help sales out as a profession because it is truly the one of the most noble and amazing professions and just very fulfilling. But the reputation that it has just really stinks. I, I spoke to um, Jill Conrath not too long ago. She's the author of four amazing sales books and um, sell, um, selling to big companies. And one of the things that she said when she wanted to start her own company was that she was told that she's going to have to go out and sell this product, right? And she said, absolutely not. There's no way that I'm going to do it. Because she thought in her mind, sales was dirty and disgusting and manipulative and, um, and ultimately beneath her. And I, I still think that that is the reputation of most people that are in sales today selling. Yeah, I agree. Super interesting. So you say that agencies think that if we are any good at what we do, then we shouldn't have to talk people into hiring us at all. Discuss.
1: I think so. And I think it's,
0: uh,
1: well, I'm going to get this quote wrong. I think Steve Jobs, who may have been Peter Drucker, who said the the objective of marketing is to make uh, s- sales irrelevant. Huh. Um or, or unnecessary. So, but that's not true. There, there are some products and services that are bought, and some that are sold. Um, so, generally speaking, uh, low, low-ticket products or services, or productized services, can be bought on a website, etc. But uh, the more customized the service, the more likely it, it's going to need to be sold that mean what i mean by that is you have to have an interaction with a salesperson hmm. whether or not that salesperson has the title of salesperson or consultant or whatever the title may be um so i think there's this like misunderstanding of of the roles that sales and marketing play with you, that uh yeah how how they relate to each other because in some organizations it really is um You know, if you do marketing properly, you can just open the doors, put up the website and watch the sales flood in. But that's not that's not the truth in the agency world.
0: Hmm. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about thought leadership. You say that the the unaware future client sits back in his uh, deck reading through our thought leadership his awareness grows and sees that his company is lagging behind he's interested in in the opportunity in front of him but not yet intent on taking action now you wrote that in 20 in 2010 when every man and his dog were not really creating that much content does that kind of thought leadership and content marketing still confer advantage in in 2012 in oh, 2020
1: absolutely. even <laughs> yeah right yeah absolutely it does oh. um the challenge is everybody who's in the knowledge based business or even people who are selling products are creating thought leadership in air quotes, we're creating, let's use the word content in their, for their content marketing. Um, so as as content marketing proliferates, uh, the really valuable stuff becomes more valuable because you, you have to sift through a lot of content these days to get to the good stuff. And generally speaking, the good stuff has a strong point of view. So, what I would say is, when I look at the the uh, content marketing that's being put out there by agencies, it's getting better. But what I would say the the uh, the most universal criticism, constructive criticism, I would have is is um, it's lacking a point of view. So, your clients will will read or engage with your content. Doesn't have to be reading and writing um but they'll engage with your content they'll they'll come for the the uh the lesson on um, di- uh, discipline for market so you you're writing about what it is that you do at, at, for the market you serve so there's this intersection of discipline and market that's reflected in your positioning and it's expressed in your content marketing because you're writing at that at that intersection you're going really deep into this into uh net uh, narrow and deep into the subject matter right so the client comes for the information but they they engage and they ultimately they hire you for the point of view it's (laughs) it's the way you think about discipline for market or aspects of discipline for market or whatever you're writing about um, that they causes them to to uh, be drawn closer to you and so I would say um, fairly universally What separates good content from bad content Hmm. is a point of view. Good content has a point of view that is somewhat polarizing Hmm. and bad content is just a list of to-dos. Interesting. And it doesn't have a point of view.
0: And that is a little bit vanilla, doesn't really offend anybody, doesn't really turn anyone off. So you think it's important to, to take a position, claim a position, whether or not you're going to alienate some people, you'll actually attract others
1: yeah and that need for polarization is a function of competition density so you look at the size of the space that you serve the number of prospective clients and then you look at your number of competitors and the more crowded the space hmm. the greater your requirement to have a point of view that is polarizing and if you're really operating in kind of a white space or a blue ocean pick your terminology where there's there's not a lot of other players. You don't really have the need to have a point of view, but that will change because others will also enter that space. And ultimately, um, when you're, when your prospective client is lining you up against another, uh, potential provider, another agency in this case, and they're looking at making an apples to apples comparison and they, and they see that, you know, what you do and what we think you're able to do for us is about similar to these other firms then the ultimate secondary differentiator is your point of view and out of your point of view falls how you work and out of that falls the development of intellectual property etc cetera, etc cetera. so point of view is really it's really the third leg of the positioning stool after you articulate your discipline and your market you add the point of view out of point of view all kinds of other good things happen
0: hmm. How do you come to a point of view because really, if I think about the point the points of view that I have on subjects that I'm quite knowledgeable about football <laughs> boxing uh, sports it's because I have a really deep knowledge of the history and the and the background of the players and the managers, so I can form a a, a point of view um, how do you advise your clients to develop a point of view on marketing or their their practice
1: you have to write um huh. you have to you have to pick a hypothesis and then write your way through it and publish it pretty much regardless of um of what the net effect is so you you just have to you have to try on a bunch of different not even theories but hi- hypotheses like I think yeah, this might be true start to write about it and you'll know at the artic- at the end of the article you have a sense of of how true this thing might be or might not might not be and and you'll get some feedback from the marketplace so you try on different points of view different hypotheses and you put them out there and you hmm. see what resonates hmm.
0: Quite, quite fascinating. You you say, quote, trying to inspire someone who doesn't recognise that they has a, they have a problem is a recipe for defensiveness and resentment." Inspiration is something we must save for the interested. But how do we get the prospect to even recognise that they have a problem in the first place? Because often, in my from my experience, they don't even know that they have problems and that's the first challenge we have to make it it visible to them that they have a problem in the first place.
1: So this comes from the fourth proclamation. We will rethink what it means to sell Mm -hmm. and in that proclamation, I say what selling means to me is helping the unaware, inspiring the interested and reassuring the, the intent. Mm -hmm. So somebody who's unaware of the fact that they have a problem, um, it's very hard in a sales world, to get somebody to see that they have a problem when they don't see that they have a problem. Effectively, if, if you see that they have a problem and they don't see that they have a problem, what I always say is effectively, they don't have a problem. (laughs) Yeah, they don't. Um, and this is a, I've, I've borrowed and bastardized a model of, of, uh, change management and taken it and applied it to the world of selling. And this is where this, this comes from. So it's, it's, uh, borrowed and, again, heavily adapted from um, Robert Procheska's trans-theoretical model of change. Hmm. Uh, And I I won't get into that model here, but you can look it up. Um, And so what I'm saying is if somebody is at the stage where what I'm calling um, unaware, they're unaware of the fact that they have a problem, there's... There's very little that you – you have some tools that you can employ. So you can employ a consciousness raising, which is um, the use of unbiased, fact-based information designed to help people see that they have a problem or an opportunity. So statistics. Um, Did you know that 75% of people in this situation encounter these outcomes? That's helpful to get to get people to see that they have a problem. And the other tool that you can use is social influence. You can say, so the example I like to use is, let's say you're selling websites and, and you find the world's worst website from a fairly big company. And you you call up that company, you manage to get the CEO on the phone. And you say, um, hey, the reason I'm calling you is uh, we sell website design. And I'm just on your website. And he stops you and says, yeah, it's great, isn't it? My uh, My nephew designed that five years ago. <laughs> Um, so he, you see it's a horrible website. Sure. He doesn't see that it's a horrible website. So what can you do in this situation? You can employ social influence and you can say to the CEO, are, are you in front of a computer?
0: Hmm.
1: Do you want to, do you want to come with me? Do you want to, let's go to the website of your closest competitor. Sure. See what they're doing. So it's use the influence of others. But those are the two primary tools that you have at your disposal when somebody doesn't see that they have a problem is the use of facts Uh, fact-based information, your thought leadership framed by a provocative point of view, and then the use of social influence. But when somebody is unaware of the fact that they have a problem, they don't, there's Mm. beyond that, there's not a lot you can do. So what I say is like, you, I say this in the book, it's not your job to talk people into things. Hmm. Um, You would keep in touch with that person. You would um, see if you can't put your thought leadership in front of them and circle back and see if their point of view on whether or not they have a problem has changed, but it's a low, it's a low percentage gamble to put a whole bunch of your efforts into trying to convince somebody that they have a problem because from their point of view, you're, you're self interested. Hmm. Right. so the walls go up they they don't really listen to your argument so you have to be subtle and take the long road when it comes to helping people to see that they have a problem huh
0: let's talk a little bit about contracts you you don't like when agencies rely on written contracts as you say a lot in your podcast and not true huh okay uh, what the challenge I see is that
1: um, agencies conflate the proposal and the contract into okay. this item called the deck Uh, so the proposal is the words that come out of your mouth the document is the contract contracts are just as important as proposals Hmm. let's just make sure we understand which is which and the role of each.
0: And I think I heard you say on the podcast recently that the deck is the thing that sort of combines everything all in one. It combines the proposal. It combines the, the the price it's everything all rolled up in one nebulous document. Free strategic
1: advice, photos of our office and our bios. (laughs) Um,
0: yeah, <laughs> really, really interesting. So let's talk about the section on being selective. You said instead of seeking clients, we will selectively and respectfully pursue perfect fits. Those target organizations that we can best help. We will say no early and often. And as such, weed out those that would be better served by others and those that cannot afford us. By saying no, we will give power and credibility to our yes. Now, What criteria should agencies use in order to decide whether or not to pursue an opportunity? Because that's not always that clear and straightforward to agencies, is it? So there's lots of criteria, but
1: if I can address something else, as you're reading that, I'm thinking, um, uh, imagine you're a buyer and you're dealing with a salesperson and you want to know which book the salesperson has written. What is their Bible? And I think, you know, back to an earlier point of why this book persists, is if you were a buyer of agency services and you read The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, you would probably be in agreement with almost everything in that book. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were being sold to by, I won't name names or books, Mm -hmm. but there are some really well-selling books that have set the sales profession back decades have done irreparable damage really? to the sales profession. I'm I not going to name names, love but to I've had these conversations them. with friends of mine who have sold selling. Um, uh, so if, yeah, I just think from the buyer point of view, look, I, I'm curious to know what books my um, the salesperson is reading right. and what they think is an appropriate tactic or motivation or point of view in this situation. So I would, Uh, I would hope that the people on the buying side of the equation would would Listen to that statement about pursuing perfect fits and being a respectful facilitator and being discerning About whether or not you really are the best option for this client and if not sending them off in a different direction I would hope they would read that and be in full agreement
0: really really interesting you say that we must accept that our client base will turn over, and we must understand that, and this churn is healthy now i I assume that a lot of agencies would struggle with the fact that uh, churn is 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 healthy, but i'm I'm sure that they acknowledge that they lose a number of clients as as well. What kind of churn should we be comfortable with, and why is churn actually a healthy thing?
1: So the first part will kind of churn these numbers I get from my friend, colleague, and podcast co-host David C. Baker. And he says healthy churn is about twenty-five to thirty-three percent of your client base in any given year. So that's the range. And some people would have a reaction to that thinking that's really high. But if you stopped and actually did the math, you would see it's not that high at all. Most agencies have too many clients. So generally speaking, you should have between eight and 12, maybe 15 clients, ongoing clients at any one time. And most have 30 or more. Um, sorry, what was the other part of the question,
0: Nathan? So that it, was the math. It was what? what part of why is it healthy?
1: Oh, yeah. So... So I could do this exercise with any of the listeners who are who might be mentally pushing back on this idea that churn is healthy And I would say okay list your clients by size and if you can or if you can by profitability And then you start at the top and go down and I ask you client by client What's it like to work on this client? What's it like to work on this client? Do they value do they see you as the expert practitioner or do they see you as a vendor? Hmm. And at some point you're going to get to a point on the list where it's like Every client name that comes up, you just kind of exhale deeply <laughs> or roll your eyes. Sure. And so y- you should assume that with all of your clients, over time, you are going to move from the position of expert practitioner through this nebulous relationship known as partners, where you partner with each other. You move through that fairly quickly to sure. this place where you are the vendor And they are the customer and your, the way you sell needs to your, your, Your goal is not only to bring in new business, it's to bring in the right type of business Mm -hmm. at high profit margin, low cost of sale with you positioned to have the greatest impact. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is with you positioned as the expert practitioner, Mm -hmm. there's no point in winning from the vendor position because you're going to get to this place really quickly where you're thinking, well, it's time to churn this one out. I would really love to replace this client (laughs) with somebody who sees us as the expert and, and is okay with us making healthy margin. So that's that slide is inevitable. So the people in charge of new business in the agency, you have a responsibility to make sure that you not only win the business, the right type of business at high profit margin, at low cost of sale, but you win the business with the agency and the expert practitioner position. Hmm. And your understanding is at some point, no matter what you do it is inevitable that at some point you will devolve to vendor with little power in the relationship, your ability to have your greatest impact on that client will diminish, your ability to earn what you see as a fair profit will diminish and then at that point, it's time to churn that client out, let them go off in search of another agency and go get somebody better who represents more money, higher margins and sees you As the expert practitioner in the relationship knowing that in three to four years on average you are going to slide from expert practitioner Mm. to vendor and it's on average it's going to be time to move those clients on and replace them now again we're talking about averages but you know the real numbers that make up those averages might be one year on the short end and it might be 10 years with some clients I know I know some agencies that have 25, 35, 38 years. I have a client who's worked with their uh, biggest client for 38 years. Um, So there are these outliers. But on average, three to four years is what your expectation
0: is. Another interesting quote from the book, which caught my attention, you say, when an opportunity first arises, we will try and see if we can kill it, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. That's a fundamentally very different approach to what many agencies do. And by the way, that's this is also the approach that scientists take with their work. They try and find all the reasons why a particular theory can't work so that they have found the reason why it can work, i.e. the truth. E- yeah, explain in theory that. they do <laughs> good scientists right yes you, you think uh,
1: explain that uh, so there's a saying in sales that objections are your friends when you hear them early and they are your enemies when you hear them late mm, okay. so when we get into an opportunity there's often kind of the, uh, uh, the elephant in the room the big objection that we're worried is going to come up and the client's thinking it and we're thinking it and nobody is saying mm. it. And you know, often it's price. Sometimes it's um, experience, category experience, mm. or just your ability to do this, yeah. whatever this is. And so nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it. You go down the road where you invest, invest, invest into the sale. You get to the final closing conversations. You've gone through this deck. You're trying to close. And then the client says, yeah, yeah, one last thing. Mm. (laughs) We don't have this much money or have you ever done this before? Mm. Right. So our natural tendency is to avoid those potential objections. Mm. And I'm just trying to flip that around and say, if there are reasons why it might make sense for the two parties to not do business together, Mm. you are far better off uncovering those reasons as soon as possible.
0: Really fascinating. Blair, I know I've only got you for a few more minutes, and I want to get into everyone's favorite questions towards the end of the interview. One more question before we get into everyone's favorite questions. Of all the 12 proclamations that you have in the book, which ones do you struggle with consistently? Oh, well, I've struggled with all of them. (laughs) I I
1: struggle with... (laughs) all of my own advice, even though, you know, we have five core, five core values that win without pitching. And one of them is lead by example. We do what we say. So we don't anything that, even though our business as a productized service business is different from an agency business, we, everything we say you should do, we do it. And, um, and I, I do a lot of public workshops. And in the last workshop I did, I said, uh, I said, I, I don't, I can't remember the last sale I was involved in where I did everything perfectly, so mm. i struggle i I have struggled with them all at various times, and i i couldn't I couldn't pick just one
0: which which ones do agencies typically struggle with the most
1: um well, historically the first proclamation we will specialize we will specialize in, interesting in, because it it's the foundational proclamation if you get that one right. Everything else becomes so much easier Um, But when I started doing this about 18 years ago, there were very few really well Positioned specialist agencies and today it's just nothing could be further from the truth. There are so many Real niche agencies that are so impactful and so lucrative. There's so many well-positioned agencies out there. It's just been marvelous amazing to watch the transition over 18
0: years. So that was actually one that we skipped before we jumped into um, the, the fourth proclamation, the sales one, which is really close to my heart as a salesman. But talk about the importance of specialization. Why is it important for agencies to specialize? And more specifically, what type of specialism are you talking about? Are you talking about service specialism, sector specialism? Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Well, well,
1: first you think about specialization, or at least I do. In in two different domains, uh, one would be, um, or two sorry, two different dimensions. One mm-hmm. would be discipline. What do you do? And one would be market. Who do right. you do it for? And markets could be vertical. They could be psychographic, demographic. There's different ways to express markets or think about markets. Uh, thinking about disciplines is fairly universal. So you, you, you want to be able to say to the world, we do, we do this for this market and the ultimate undifferentiated agency would be, we do full service marketing communications. That's our discipline is basically everything under the banner of marketing communications Mm -hmm. for anybody who needs it. And, uh, if you're still of the view that, well, that's, I would rather sell that, Um, because the world is your oyster. You can sell anything to anybody that you, uh, you probably haven't really been in the position where you've been the person who has to sell it. Or maybe you're just an excellent natural salesperson and we're going to come back to that conversation. (laughs) But I remember in my first agency job, I was 22 years old and my boss said to me, I'd been at the agency for six months. And he said to me, you strike me as fearless. I'm going to put you in charge of new business. Oh, great. (laughs) And I said, "Okay, look, uh, who do you want me to go after? And he said, well, we're a full service marketing communication. He said that this is the good news. We do advertising, public relations, graphic design for uh, for profit corporations, not for profit entities and government departments. Right. So he, he thought he was empowering me by saying, well, essentially you can sell pretty much anything to pretty much anybody. <laughs> but if you've ever been in that position, it's completely debilitating. Sure. And this was in the pre-web days, right? So I could pick up the phone, make an outbound call, make a claim of expertise that was a total lie, and somebody could not just type my... Uh, agency name into their browser, find our website, find other stuff about it to see that it was a total lie. You could make all of these claims, mm-hmm. but it's it's debilitating to the salesperson um, mm-hmm. to have to sell this broad thing to as many people as possible. So it's the, the good news is when you're broadly positioned, you're relevant
0: to everybody. Mm-hmm. But you're different to nobody.
1: But that's and a that's really good
0: the challenge. That's a really good point that you that you make. And I think a lot of people kind of overlook the import the importance of that part of, of the, you know, the importance of specialization. Because most people think it's important to specialize because of what it communicates to the market and your customers. But actually it's important because of what it does to the salesperson and your own internal belief in your own offering and your ability to sell that and communicate that value to your audience when you're really focused on a particular niche or service offering you you, you your your internal confidence increases tenfold oh
1: absolutely i so i've been in i've been in both ends of those spectrum where it's you feel like you're a generalist mm. Um, and you, you have no differentiation and then I've been in situations where I've been selling highly differentiated creative services. And I remember, I think I told the story in one of my books, I remember calling the vice president of a certain type of company and we had some deep category experience and I left a couple of voicemail messages and he didn't call me back. So I called the president of the company and I left him a voicemail message. And I said, this is the young, arrogant Blair ends. And I said, uh, Hey, I'm trying to reach your vice president of marketing, but he won't return my phone call. Maybe you will. <laughs> and, uh, And the vice president called me back within an hour because the president passed the message on and he apologized. But I I think of doing that now and I think, man, what got into you? Well, what got into me other than the arrogance of youth was this idea that I was absolutely convinced we could help this company because we had done – we had helped companies like this solve problems that they clearly had twice before Mm. to great effect, to great impact. So Mm – when I found this business, I thought, oh, man, they would be crazy not to hire us. Mm. So that's the difference of that's me being empowered, having the having the, um, uh, the spine. Pick your anatomy <laughs> to leave that message with the, the president versus um, Just smiling and dialing with these or sending out broadcasting these like generic messages of sameness to hundreds of prospective
0: clients. Really interesting. Blair, let's get into our our favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my... Actually, just before we do that, just a question on the podcast, the Two Bobs podcast. Fantastic, by the way. Thank you. What's with the stapler? Uh, So
1: do you know where the name Two Bobs comes from? No. Have you seen the movie Office Space? No. With oh. Honest. It's a cult classic of a movie. I hear. I hear it And is. in that movie, this company, tech brings in two consultants, both named Bob. <laughs> and David C. Baker and I, over the years, have heard so many references that we are, oh, you're one of the Bobs. The stapler oh, uh, plays a prominent role in that movie. So it's a bunch of... It's references. an inside joke. Right. I, guess. So I wanted to call seen... it
0: between two bobs.
1: Okay, that's just <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's that's stealing to the weird. Bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How have you found the podcast experience overall?
1: It's been uh, it's been fantastic and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. So yeah. I, I've I've written two books and over the years I've had people come up to me and say, oh, I I've read your book. I'm a I'm a big fan, thank you. But I when somebody comes up to me in an event and I, they've, they want to introduce themselves. I can tell right away that they've listened to the podcast because there's this, there's a sense of intimacy, knowing, yeah, yeah. When hmm. somebody's listening to your voice all the time, and I, I know it. I was, I was speaking at a conference, the same conference where Alec Baldwin was speaking once. Oh wow! And I was doing a breakout session. He was doing a, a keynote. And after I did my talk, I thought to myself, I used to listen to his podcast quite frequently. I hmm. thought I'm going to go say hi to Alec. And that as I'm walking in his direction, I just stopped and I turned beat red and I realized I he has no idea who I am. I just assumed (laughs) we're old friends because I hear his voice. Because I hear him all the time. Yeah. I spoke in I did a talk in London a few months ago and before we went live, this woman comes running down the stairs in this theater and she yells out, Blair, and she throws her arms around me. And in the middle of hugging me, she realizes And in the middle of hugging me, she right. realizes I don't know who she is. And she has this <laughs> horrified reaction and goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Oh, but I wow. knew exactly what was going sure, on. I knew sure. she had been listening to my voice and felt like we were deeply connected. So it's a it's a fantastic um,
0: medium. I it, absolutely it, love it. It really is. OK, let's get into our favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. And I'm super fascinated to ask you some of them as well. Um, so tell us about a time when you failed and what Ugh. you learned from the experience
1: i you know i don't
0: like this question because
1: <laughs> i fail all the time oh that's an I easy
0: cop out blair that's an easy all way the time. to Go and on. so
1: what i uh so we just canceled we've okay. we for the first time decided we we're going to do a five-day workshop we do two-day workshops we we're going to do a five-day workshop um in Chicago and we, so considerable financial outlay to set it up, considerable risk. And, um, we didn't, we didn't start marketing it early enough and then the coronavirus hits, et cetera. And, um, I decide, made a quick decision that to, to pull the plug on it and we'll, we'll do it again next year. Hmm. Um, we've got to give give people more time. And then we ran into this, uh, event and then, so I made the decision to pull the plug on that event and we incurred a a financial hit had to refund some money um it it wasn't you know it's not going to debilitate us but for the a few days after that some of my team members were just like belaboring did we make the right decision did we make the right decision Mm -hmm. and my response is we made the decision it's behind us well let's take what we've learned from this but i'm i'm just not going to dwell on failure there's always Mm -hmm. a lesson in failure Right. But I just, I'm never going to mire myself in the emotions of failure. It's just analytical. Look at what we learned. What would I do differently? And then, you know, a week goes by and the coronavirus is big and people Mm. are canceling travel Mm. and there's just no question that it was the right call Mm. to make. Mm. Um, but I think what do I take from failure is I take, take the information, not the emotional wrapper that comes in, make the decision, move forward and don't ever look back.
0: Hmm. Absolutely love it. Tell us about some of your early mem- mentors. Who influenced your approach to the way that you think about marketing, the way you think about winning new business? Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a woman named Pauline O'Malley in Vancouver who taught me to sell, <clears throat> and she taught me that there was science involved in selling, hmm. and there was a way to do it properly, and I'll be forever indebted to her. I, I, she's acknowledged in my... Uh, in the acknowledgement section the of the Win Without Pitching Madness. So Fantastic. My um, podcast co-host, David C. Baker, he invited me to speak at an event that he, he used to run back in 2003. The next year, in 2004, he was running a new business event and he was struck hospitalized with a kidney stone and he emailed me and said, would you come down and do this event for me? Hmm. So I did and that was... We collaborated on that. He would leave his hospital room and come and make sure I wasn't ruining everything. And then he would go back to the hospital. And so that was the beginning of a multi-year relationship that's been very fruitful and rewarding professionally and personally. I have so much from David. In fact, like he and I acknowledge that. Yeah, a certain percentage of what we both claim to be our thinking is the other person's <laughs> thinking, and and we've just
0: given up trying it's to super interesting trying to keep it straight. You guys so, have a great chemistry on the podcast, by the way. It's absolutely fantastic. So genuinely, um, yeah. the books question: tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, whatever. I know that you're a big reader.
1: Yeah, I'm a big reader, but I my one of my goals in 2019 was to try not to read any nonfiction, including business books. Interesting. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't successful, <laughs> um, but I didn't read a lot. So, so some of my favorite books, I think Peter Thiel's book zero to one huh. might be the best basic business book ever written. Really? Why? Yeah.
0: Uh, because he, sorry, go on. Did you read it? I did. I, didn't get the whole it's more for tech tech startups and tech founders that's what i i mean there are there is some applicability to the rest of the rest of business but i don't know one of the best books ever really tell me me one of the
1: best basic business books if you're thinking of starting a business and i just see so many applications i think he he talks about a lot of the subject matter that i have talked about and thought about Hmm. for years especially um positioning and the related topics but in ways that i had never thought of before so i that's a really impressive book to me uh hmm. Ro- one of the books i read last year and i read it twice was rory sutherland's book alchemy, alchemy. that might oh, be the best brilliant. book so ever good. written on advertising and it's so not really an advertising book
0: per not, se yeah yeah it's, yeah i mean i think he's been a guest in your podcast he has. Has he? yeah just he packs so much knowledge and wisdom into every single sentence (laughs) yeah every sentence of the podcast as well it was just absolutely phenomenal speaking to him um absolutely just yeah a huge amount of value um that's phenomenal any give us one more what are the books
1: um, I'll, t- I'll try to give you a book on selling because I'm asked this a lot. I yeah. own a lot of books on selling, and I've read almost none of them. I've <laughs> skimmed through them all to kind of – but I have a hard time reading about really? selling. Yeah. Interesting. The one exception – well, it was an audio book. The exception is Mahan Kals' book, Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. Right. And kind of like Peter Thiel's book, that – uh uh Kalsa's book was uh it was a collection of notes from various events that he had done, et cetera. And I don't even know if he was the person to cobble it all together. But I th- think the I think the kind of the original, you can find different versions of the book yeah. because it's I think the I think the most thorough, complete version is the audiobook. And I listened to the audiobook. Yeah. And I think spiritually, like if there is a if Win Without Pitching has a spiritual godfather, it would probably be Mahan <laughs> really? Khalsa. Interesting. And I, I didn't read it until after I had written the Win Without Pitching yeah. manifesto, but I thought, oh yeah, this is, this is the way to think about that sales. That book has and been it's, mentioned
0: um, by so many people that I admire and respect. Seth Godin, he says that's his go-to yeah. sales book. Just go down the list of just amazing people that just recommend that book. I've got it. I just haven't gone through it yet, but... Yeah, I'll, I'll bring it up to the top of the list now. Really, you, I would say if
1: you're if you're only going to read one book on sales on yeah. selling, and it's not the without pitching manifesto, <laughs> I would say it's "Let's Get Real" or "Let's Not Play." Even the
0: title, come yeah. on, "Let's yeah. Get Real" or "Let's Not Play." Love it.
1: It's That's so good.
0: It. It's so different from most sales books. Really interesting. What are you most optimistic about when it comes to agencies, and what are you least optimistic about? What I'm most optimistic
1: about is whatever is going to grow out of the rubble when the holding companies implode. Huh. Wow. And I don't know what that's going to look like. And I don't know if they'll ever really properly implode. But there's this really interesting dynamic at the top end of the market where you've got – And it might be some sort of bias because I'm spending a lot of time with procurement people and Mm. reading stuff written by procurement people. I'm trying to understand that world more. Mm. But I see this tendency toward the pursuit of efficiencies among the largest clients, procurements getting more and more power. And I see holding company owned agencies responding by cutting costs, cutting costs, cutting costs. So I think the largest Advertisers in the world are locked into this like mutual death spiral with the largest agencies in the world And there's this race to the bottom and I'm happy for it all to just blow up so innovation can prosper and the independent ages specialist agencies can get out there create real value for the best clients make lots of money and have big impact on their clients' businesses and earn extraordinary compensation for themselves. (laughs) Love
0: it. Talk about taking a position. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely love it. Uh, Final couple of questions. Amazon Prime or Netflix? Uh, What do I watch? Yeah, what do you prefer? uh, Well, which platform do you – or I should probably throw Disney Plus into that mix or Hulu. Yeah. But You're asking
1: you? the wrong person. I have Netflix huh. and Amazon Prime. I watch mostly Netflix just because the way my television is set up, it's easier. But there are some Amazon Prime shows that I love. I uh, what are you I, watching these I'm, days? I'm, uh, what am I watching these days? So Mrs. Maisel, season three of Mrs. Maisel. So good. My my wife and I. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. Visually, mm, beautiful. That show is incredible. Stunning. Um, even like the the. Uh, yeah. Um, and then on Netflix, what am I watching? I'm not sure. I'm just kind of surfing. I don't watch a lot of television. Okay. I gave up television 20, almost 25 wow. years ago. And it's only come back when it's streaming online. So I still don't watch very much TV. This
0: is the golden age of, of television again. That's what they're saying. It is. Yeah. It's so much amazing Game content. of Thrones was incredible. Fantastic. Fantastic. Cultural phenomenon. Um, what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who says... <laughs> They want to start an agency. Are you crazy? First <laughs> of all, I would say
1: this word agency, it it doesn't apply anymore. Like it's been a long time since ad advertising agencies were agents of anyone and nobody even remembers this. They were agents of the daily newspapers. Hmm. Um, the idea that we're so nobody says, I want to start an agency. They want to start a marketing firm or a design firm or l- more likely a, a technology startup, a product company of some kind. Mm-hmm. So, what I would say to a young person is even though the first proclamation of the Win Without Pitching Manifesto is, We will specialize, I would say, Do not specialize too early. When you're young, you should seek breadth. You should say yes to everything that comes your way. You should put your head down and work really hard. Hmm. And then after you've been at it a few years and you've tried a few different things, then you start to look for opportunities to specialize. Then you have this breadth of experience across disciplines and markets, and the opportunities will be more obvious when they present themselves to you. You'll just have the skills to be able to recognize real opportunities. So
0: don't specialize too Hmm. early. Love that. Have you come across that book range um which, talks, yeah, which David talks about Epstein. Oh, so good. Have you have you read it yet? Yeah,
1: I've read it twice. I was um
0: uh, fantastic.
1: Re- I was reading it and I said to a friend um he said I was reading it. And he said that's the most intellectually dishonest book I've read in 10 years. Dishonest. And uh I think what he means is so again, I've read it twice. I've I've taken a, extensive notes on it for something that I'm writing. And um, the only thing dishonest is the subtitle. And I don't, I'm not, I suspect the author did not write the subtitle. What's the, subtitle? the subtitle is Why, um, I'm going from memory here, Why Generalists were, Will Rule in a, in a Specialized World. Yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. And the book never pays that off. Never. It's filled with great insight. Um, But the net takeaway is absolutely not that are better off being a generalist it's absolutely not the net takeaway of the book so the only thing dishonest and it's is is the subtitle Hmm. but so if you can just get your head around that and don't um yeah
0: just get your head around that it's Hmm. a very worthwhile read fantastic and and my final question Blair what does you know about winning new business for agencies today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career
1: oh good question what is it that I know now? Um, I don't know that I, I can't point to things. There's probably lots of them, but I can't point to things that I absolutely know today that I didn't know at all that blindsided me. What I would say is some of my convictions are just are deeper, a lot deeper. Um, what, wh- one thing that I, uh, I discovered about five years in, I had this realization that, um, you really can be anything. This idea, you can be whatever you want. You can build a business that does whatever you want. Like that's just, it's, it's almost like when you hear that when you're young, you think, yeah, that's Mm. something a parent says to you. But now with the benefit of experience, I think I could go back in time and pick something. And if I just decided I'm going to go all in on something and Mm. I want to be the world's best at X or among mm. the world's best at X mm. I mean with the exception of some scientific fields like <laughs> particle <laughs> physics etc where I just don't have the intellectual capacity mm. if you pick a focus and you're determined to mm. climb the hill you you will do it there's m- most people I would bet on the mm. challenge is most people don't focus especially creative people there's something about the creative mind where we are drawn to variety so the creative person is like this thoroughbred, like a wild Mustang galloping <laughs> across the plains. Sure. And the bridle, I always, this is a metaphor that I see myself as the consultant. The bridle that I want to put on that wild Mustang is positioning, is focus. If I can get this wild Mustang to focus, <laughs> then, then they're going to start winning races sure. and they're going to be unbeatable. But until that moment, until they focus, they're just this strong beautiful creature galloping everywhere Mm. they're beautiful but they're not really accomplishing anything they're not winning Mm. so focus is the bridle that allows those wild mustangs to start winning races love it blair thank you so much for doing this
0: thanks nathan i've really enjoyed it we have been speaking with Blair Enns. He is the CEO of Win Without Pitching. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to 53 such conversations we've had now with world-class sales and marketing leaders. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathan@agencydealmasters.com. At Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Magecki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Barber. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. And we're done. Fantastic. (laughs) Thank you so much.